You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To Book of Nature, Episode 2. My name is Todd Pedler, and I'm an Associate Professor of Physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Joining me today, as will be the norm, our first, Dan Dawson, who is a research meteorologist at the Center for Analysis and Prediction of Storms at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. How are you this fine October day, Dan? I'm doing pretty good. Just, just kind of relaxing this morning and getting ready for the podcast and help watching the, my uh, sick uh, youngster, but he's doing a lot better, and the weather's pretty nice. I, I knew you'd say something about the weather, uh, that's, and I daren't ask. So, um, are you sure? I can tell uh, you. I <laughs> if I listened to last time uh, our podcast, I, I, I think maybe I'd best not. <laughs> All right. Uh, also joining us today is Charles Hackney, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Cairnport, Saskatchewan, Canada. How are you up there in the Great White North, Charles? Up to my eyeballs and exams to grade. Uh, other than that, doing pretty good. Well, how was your Thanksgiving last week? Uh, it was nice. Uh, we had a few friends over, and uh, I-, I got to have pie. That's always good. Mm, pie. Yeah. It's one of the advantages of being an American living in Canada, uh, married to a Canadian. We get two Thanksgivings. Most excellent. Uh, Well, plus, uh, my wife is of uh, Ukrainian uh, origin, so that also means we have the option of having two Christmases. (laughs) And you have two Independence Days, and you can can keep on rolling the dice uh, uh, down that road. It's good to be me. (laughs) It's good. All right. Well, um, I'd like to take a moment to remind our listeners of the aims of our podcast briefly, since this is a show that's still in its infancy. Um, The show has its genesis in conversations between each of the three of us and the host of the Christian Humanist podcast, uh, both on the air, as it were, and when we were uh, when we were each interviewed concerning our work as scientists and as Christians. And uh, eventually those conversations turned into a wouldn't it be a great thing to do a show on science at popular level. Uh, kind of kind of conversation where we talk about science as a human endeavor by Christians who are engaged in that endeavor. And so here we are. Uh, and I dare say we're all thankful for the opportunity that, uh, that we've had to, to, to start this up. Absolutely. I'm yeah. loving it so I, far. So far. Um, in our first episode, we elaborated on our aims. So if you've only just now discovered us and haven't listened to episode one, that might be well worth your while. And here we are at episode two. And today... Uh, I've chosen, since I was given the wheel, which is a terrible thing to do, uh, to begin our substantive discussions with a discussion of the distinction between science and scientism, between the practice and discipline of science, and the worldview uh, that's so often confused with science. I had shared with my two co-hosts a pair of articles, one by Peter Atkins, a chemist, entitled Science as Truth, and another more recent article by Austin Hughes, a biologist, entitled The Folly of Scientism. So we may or may not address these articles in in any particular detail today, but I will have links of them posted on the show notes, which you'll be able to find at christianhumanist.org. So I think um, 
Before we begin, I'm going to pitch a question to Dan. Um, it's probably best that we take a crack at defining some key terms that we'll be using in this discussion. Um, so, Dan, you've got the first shot at laying open the conflict before us. Um, give us your best effort at defining science and scientism. All right. Well, Todd gave me, like, a really super easy question uh, to start off with. Not. Uh, it's actually, this, there's, this is fraught with all kinds of uh, difficulty to try to distinguish these two. But let me give my best effort. Uh, I guess, uh, in my mind... In my own words, I would define science as a set of methods for obtaining knowledge and understanding of the natural world, the exercise of these methods, and the body of knowledge and understanding resulting from the exercise of those methods. So that's just something I just came up with uh, based on my own experience in working in science. Um, and I think it dovetails pretty well with a lot of popular uh, definitions for science out there. Um, <coughs> So uh, it's important to point out from this definition that, that science is not just a collection of facts, uh, nor is it some ethereal authority figure pronouncing things by fiat, like saying, science says this. Um, science says you should eat your Wheaties or whatever. Um, and actually, arguments from authority like that are actually generally looked down upon in science. Um, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes along with this is that is implicit in this definition. Uh, one of them is the idea that um, we're talking about the natural world here. We're talking about gaining some kind of understanding and knowledge of the natural world. And what the natural world is, of course, itself open to debate. I don't really want to get too far down that road. But in general, that's, that's sort of a provisional working definition I think that most scientists would agree with. Um, and a thing that comes along with that also is that scientific knowledge in and of itself is provisional. It, it's subject to change based on new data, new understanding, new theories, and so on. There's never a point where we can say with definitive certainty that this piece of knowledge we have obtained through science is the end-all, be-all truth. So having got that out of the way, and obviously feel free to interject anytime you want to correct me or chime in or anything, mm -hmm. but uh, I... Scientism, by contrast, I would, again, this is my definition, um, I would define it as a philosophical system that places science, as defined previously, in a favored or supreme epistemological status. That is, some status about its abil your ability to know something, uh, a system of knowledge, relative to other proposed ways of obtaining knowledge. So, for example, relative to philosophy, relative to theology, uh, even logic, mathematics, um, what have you. Any other, any other system of thought or inquiry out there that claims to generate knowledge. Scientism would be something that would try to elevate science above those in some way. Do, uh, do you think um, per, uh, people who, who uh, work in fields that are not associated with science um, in our normal in our normal understanding of the term what do you think they uh, especially academics see themselves as participating in I mean I, I see there's some leakage of what we would consider to be science or scientific methods into other fields do you see that oh yeah um and I would agree that, that by the definition I gave of science is, is pretty broad. 
and and it can include some some methods of inquiry, some other fields out there that wouldn't traditionally call themselves science in the modern sense. Um, so I don't think there's any hard and fast line, really. There's a, there's a spectrum. There, things are more or less scientific in their, in their nature of inquiry. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess I, I would want to say something a little bit more about scientism. I'd like to distinguish between uh, what I would call strong scientism on one hand and weak on the other. Um, whereas uh, strong scientism is sort of the idea that the position that, that only scientific knowledge, well, however that's defined, um, or truth in that context counts as quote-unquote real truth. Um, so all other truth from the standpoint of strong scientism, all other truth claims arising from other systems of inquiry are either not really true or they're just they're trivially true or they have no bearing on objective reality. So they would be, say, subjective truths or preferences, like I like strawberry ice cream. You know, that's a true statement, right? But it doesn't really have any bearing on physical reality, like understanding it better. Other than that, you've gained knowledge that I like strawberry ice cream. Um, mm. Whereas... Um, Weak scientism, I think, is a little bit harder to pin down. But I think it generally acknowledges that other systems of inquiry, like philosophy, theology, etc., may have some positive epistemological status, but, but nevertheless, they're always going to be uh, inferior to scientifically derived knowledge, and science should have the final say on matters of, these, of truth, and so on. So... Uh, I, I think it's important to distinguish those two because I think that most most scientists who would advocate some form of sci scientism would distance, distance themselves from strong scientism and they would hold to some sort of weak scientism. Um, or al Although a lot of times you'll see them make statements that are really strong scientism even if they don't realize it. So that's just uh, a, a distinction that I'd like to, to mm -hmm. lay out there on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I another another thing just occurred to me while while we you know you were talking there um and this is the uh the, the important what I think important characteristic of of real science is the provisional nature of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the provisional nature in terms of declaring truths and so forth. Um how how do you see uh that I think requirement for science that that it that it be provisional in its declarations. How do you see that conflicting with, as you've called it, strong scientism? Well, yeah, that's a, actually a great question. Um, that was something that I was going to uh, talk about later, but I, but since you brought it up, let's just deal with that now. Um, sure. I, I, yeah, I absolutely agree that. Um, I think I know where you're going. At least it does definitely conflict. I think at least the spirit of that conflicts science. By, by its very nature, is provisional truth. We can't, you know, ever say we've arrived at the final answer. There's always a chance that some new observation will come along and overturn some pri previously held uh, belief or knowledge, um, or at least modify it. Um, and so by the strong scientism standpoint is ironic in the sense that it claims some sort of absolute 
uh, measure of what counts as real knowledge and truth, which by itself is not derived. Well, first of all, it's not derived through science itself, which makes it somewhat self-defeating in a logical sense. Um, but also, it really chafes, you know, grates at that spirit of humility that comes from understanding that uh, science, scientific knowledge is provisional. And I think that most scientists um, really understand the importance of, of sort of cultivating a sense of humility when they're doing work. Um, at least they um, will, if you push them into a corner, you know, they will say, yes, this is important. And I'd like to think that I try to do that in my own scientific practice. But, you know, scientists are humans just like everybody else. And we often get, you know, our pet theories, our ideas, and we'll fight tooth and nail about them and, and elevate them be beyond what, you know, strictly speaking, the science would allow. And I think scientism in the strong sense may be just sort of a, 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 a natural elevation or or expanding of the horizon of that sort of impulse. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, one one last uh, rabbit trail that I that I thought of as as you're you're speaking. Um, historically speaking, uh, when when does this when does science itself uh, really begin? Oh boy, uh, <laughs> I am I am not a historian by any stretch. My knowledge of the history of these things is very very limited. But uh, I guess I can take a crack at it. Um, yeah, uh, I'd say that there's been sort of glimmers of what we would consider modern scientific methodology, uh, all the way as far back as ancient Greeks and maybe even further uh, Aristotle brought up some uh, systems for uh, philosophy of arguing from observations in nature towards truth, and that, that's sort of a uh, one linchpin in the scientific quote-unquote method. Um, as you move beyond that, uh, Galileo had a lot to say about formulating uh, scientific, uh, shall we say, scientific endeavors. Uh, I'm really rambling here. Uh, I'm just name-dropping at this point, but uh, Isaac Newton... Uh, is widely recognized as the father of modern science, um, and so on. You have Francis Bacon, uh, and I think that it's not, there has never been one guy that came out and said, okay, this is how science is going to work, and, and that's the way it's been ever since then. It's been sort of this broad development that has its, uh, has its uh, origins way, way back in uh, human history. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting to me to 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 watch uh, watch through the lens of history uh, how how that has really developed, how scientific inquiry really has developed, and I just I, I find it interesting, at least to me, that that uh, there was a a fair deal of binding up of philosophy and worldview and science long, long, long ago. Oh yes, very uh, good that point. has sort of yeah. come back full circle. Yeah, um, you know, from uh, you know, for from the if I were to go back to the 17th, 18th centuries, uh, you would find a much, you know, maybe a, a, a much more distinct uh, or a much larger distinction between uh, between science per se, scientific endeavors, and an attendant worldview. Um, 
And it's just funny to watch that pendulum swing back and forth. Sure, sure. And, you know, to a certain extent, I understand that impulse. I think it's it's hard to make a clear cut between just having a pure scientific method that's divorced from any philosophical consideration. In fact, I think it's impossible to do so um, on one hand. Uh, but uh, it also, uh, you can have so much of a mixture of, of, you know, for example, what used to be, science used to be considered part of natural theology or natural philosophy, where you have this mixture of all kinds of uh, philosophical, theological presuppositions that were given, you know, as much weight as empirical observations and such. And a modern scientist would presumably balk at that for the most part. But nevertheless, there's still there's got to be some connection to these other areas of inquiry. And I guess we can talk about that, about the philosophical yeah. presuppositions behind science at some point. But I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that there's been this pendulum swing back towards sort of, I would say, naively treating uh, philosophy as being some subset of science or having been supplanted by science. And I think that comes up in those definitions of scientism I give. They're actually philosophical uh, viewpoints, but a lot of the uh, a lot of the scientists that espouse scientistic, as I'll say, viewpoints don't really either recognize that they're philosophical in nature, or they claim that that they're actually scientific in nature. They they equivocate, at least in my right. view. So that's yeah. that that I, I agree with you there. That's it is kind of an interesting mm. observation. And thought yeah. of it that way before. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we, we're sort of morphing a little bit um, in in the direction of of a second question. I'd like to direct to Charles. Um, as we think about science and scientism, um, I think a related question is the uh, related to the the type of or extent of what we might call naturalism that's necessary for scientists um, to engage in their studies. So can you talk a little bit about that? What kind of natural, what different types of naturalism are there and and how is this connected to the question of practice of science? Certainly. Um, So what I'm going to focus on is a distinction between uh, metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism. And this uh, this fits very well with this distinction uh, between science and scientism, uh, as uh, one of them is a philosophical worldview and uh, the other is not. Um, so metaphysical naturalism uh, is a, a philosophical worldview. Uh, that We've already had this term kicked around a little bit. A, a worldview is a philosophical conceptual structure that we use as an interpretive framework to address the, the questions of life. So what is reality? Where did everything come from? Uh, what do, where does knowledge come from? What does it mean to be human? What is the optimal structure of a human life? Why is everything so messed up? Uh, what can be done to fix it? Uh, is there a trajectory to history? Is history going anywhere? Uh, what happens after we die? Uh, and uh, the, the worldview uh, provides ways of answering and addressing these types of questions. And uh, what, we, what ends up happening is that uh, when we go about uh, almost uh, any uh, action... Uh, any explanation, any interpretation of the world, any project that we uh, undertake, uh, any of that sort of stuff, uh, it is embedded, whether we uh, explicitly state it or not, 
uh, in a worldview. Uh, so I'll uh, quote a little bit from uh, the philosopher David Noggle in his uh, book on this uh, the concept of worldview. Uh, the overt beliefs and behaviors, as well as social sociocultural phenomena, are consciously or not most often rooted in and expressions of some deeper underlying principle and concept of life. So if that's what a worldview is, I'm, gonna, uh, the, I'm going to argue that metaphysical naturalism is a worldview. Um, it answers these questions. It answers what is reality. It answers where did everything come from. It answers where does knowledge come from. Um, specifically, the way that it does this is um, through a metaphysical monism, uh, the idea that there that reality is, consists of only one thing, um, in this case, only nature. Uh, there is no spiritual. There is no supernatural side of reality. There is no other anything. There is only nature. Uh, you want a uh, good summary of that? Um, hit YouTube, uh, uh, unless you have DVDs of it, uh, for uh, the uh, the original Carl Sagan version of Cosmos, the TV show. Uh, he starts off uh, with this, uh, you might, might call it a naturalist creed, uh, some sort of liturgical, sound, sounds like a liturgical statement. Uh, he's standing <laughs> on a um, a beachfront and he's saying the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be nice impression thank you <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it, it, it is this totalizing statement uh, that nothing exists outside of that and uh, we in the same way that uh, we can get equivocation between science and scientism uh, we can get equivocation going on with metaphysical naturalism uh, as this type of naturalism typically brings with it a high view of the natural sciences. Uh, some, in fact, have uh, defined metaphysical naturalism that way uh, by saying that all that exists are the things that can be examined using the scientific method. Uh, not always. Not everybody does that. There are varieties. Uh, for example, you'll find some philosophers, some historians who are metaphysical naturalists, uh, but who believe that science is a path to knowledge, not necessarily the only path to knowledge. So, you know, historical inquiry and philosophical inquiry uh, could also be legitimate. Uh, but for those who hold to a scientistic framework, uh, we are uh, we're looking more at those who would. Um, devalue uh, fields like history and philosophy as, uh, at best, lesser forms of knowledge. Recreations. There we go. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sort of dovetails with what I was saying about uh, weak scientism. They, they won't go out as far as to say that they're worthless, just not as worthwhile. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so how does somebody who holds the, the, the only knowledge that is... Um, must come a, must come about through scientific inquiry. How do they how do they prove that? Well, that's where we get into the internally self defeating component of this. <laughs> it is uh, it's more common to find this uh, uh, the hardcore scientific side of metaphysical uh, naturalism uh, among those who are unwilling to do their philosophical homework. And it ends up being not, not only it ends up being self-perpetuating, because if you begin with the idea that uh, there is nothing good to be learned from philosophy, there's no point in studying any philosophy. Uh, 
Uh, if you don't study philosophy, you never have to confront the fact that uh, by making this statement, uh, you are in fact doing philosophy, uh, just doing it badly. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I think that's that's an excellent point. I, um, basically, you can't escape making philosophical statements at some level, and uh, so if you dismiss it, you're you're just you're going to be unaware of how you're dismissing it. I guess. Right. Um, uh, so that reminds me of some things that, like, say, uh, Richard Dawkins has said. Not not so much about philosophy, but uh, where he calls uh, theology a non-subject about a non-thing. I don't have to study theology. I don't have to study what the theologians are saying because it's just ridiculous, and there's no need to even look into it. That kind of attitude. That is, and uh, among that particular uh, set of uh, public thinkers, we uh, we actually have uh, been seeing some wide uh, widespread. Uh, broad brush dismissals of philosophy uh, when uh, many people, you know, uh, Dawkins, uh, Harris, uh, one of the recent uh, inclusions to this, Stephen Hawking has uh, weighed in on this as well, uh, saying that uh, science has supplanted philosophy, so we don't need to do philosophy, we don't need to read philosophers because they don't actually contrib contribute anything useful. Um, so we don't even, you know, all we need to do is do science, and then we can answer all of this stuff. Uh, the problem is then that uh, they immediately proceed to start addressing philosophical questions uh, that are not amenable to scientific uh, investigation, and usually end up just doing it really badly, and uh, it ends up still being self-perpetuating because uh, when the philosophers get their hands on some of this, they, you know, they typically facepalm, uh, and say, <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're dismissing philosophy and then you're doing philosophy and you're doing it badly. Here are the ways you're doing philosophy badly. Knock it off. Uh, and the reaction to these reviews that they get is, yeah, well, that's just philosopher saying things. Um, yeah, we don't have to so, take him yeah, seriously. Yeah, we don't have to do that. Now, I mean, so, now some scientists, especially the ones that... Uh, I've, I've, I've picked on a little bit in the past few minutes, uh, are trying to claim that metaphysical naturalism is the only proper worldview for a scientist. Uh, they are, in fact, distinct. It's possible to be a metaphysical naturalist without being a scientist, uh, and it's possible to be a scientist without being a metaphysical naturalist. Uh, all that's required there is a reje rejection of the idea that nature is the only thing that exists. Uh, what is a bit more necessary for scientists is uh, a methodological naturalism. Now, uh, this is a term that uh, we associate with, uh, the, philo uh, with the philosopher uh, Robert Pennock at uh, Michigan State University uh, from uh, some publications that he came out with in the mid-1990s. And <coughs> uh, methodological naturalism is uh, more about um, recognizing the nature of science and the boundaries of science and trying to respect those boundaries. And, uh, and the approach here is that science is well-suited to explain, examining natural phenomena and explaining natural phenomena in terms of natural causes. Uh, so that would mean that if we, wanna, if we have a question that we want to ask that falls outside of uh, nature, uh, 
we cannot address it using the tools of science. Uh, and when we do bring science to bear on any question, we are bringing only those tools with us, and we should not, um, uh, we, we, we should not act as if uh, we are bringing anything else. <coughs> so, um, one example, so, all of my examples will be coming from psychology. Deal with it, listeners. Uh, <laughs> one of my areas of research is the psychology of religion. And although this, this, this term methodological naturalism uh, uh, is a term that uh, we've uh, latched onto in the mid-1990s, the attitude, the approach to this goes all the way back to the beginning of my field, the, the, the beginning of the psychology of religion, uh, William James and his 1902 publication, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Um, James set the tone for... Uh, this field, using the tools of uh, scientific psychology to examine religious phenomena. Now, I'm going to be very much paraphrasing at this point, but um, the way that William James uh, put it is, he said, uh, I'm a psychologist. I study human lives. When addressing the issue of religion, I'm a psychologist. I study human lives. Uh, I am not competent to answer questions like, is there a God? Uh, if there a God, if there is a God, what is God like? Uh, if you want to ask those questions, you need to talk to somebody who is not a psychologist. Um, they will have their toolbox for handling those questions. I've got my toolbox. My toolbox is well suited to looking at patterns in people's thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Clearly, religion influences people's thoughts, feelings, and behavior. So all I can do as a psychologist <coughs> is ask what patterns do I see in people's lives, in people's thoughts, feelings, and behavior in connection with religious phenomena, and then sort of bracket any, um, any, any metaphysical um, connection here uh, off to the side. So I'm just going to examine this. And, uh, and this is an approach that uh, continues to have an in, uh, impact on the, the kind of research that we do. Uh, re uh, recently, I was uh, uh, talking with some of my students about some current work being done in the neuropsychology of religion, which is all kinds of cool, fascinating stuff, and it might be fun to do an episode on that all by itself, uh, wanting to look at what happens at a physical level in the brain uh, when people are engaged in religious phenomena. And there's all sorts of cool stuff we could do here. We could look at Michael Persinger and his work with the right temporal lobe. Uh, we can look at the neuroimaging studies of Dequillian Newberg. Um, <clears throat> at what, what we find is, you know, not surprising, when people are engaged in religious phenomena, when they're praying, when they're worshiping, uh, when they're meditating, when they are um, having uh, profound spiritual experiences, the brain does stuff. Okay, you know, which is cool, mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't necessarily say anything about the validity of the religious experiences themselves. Now, some people, uh, particularly those either who hold to a scientific worldview or who uh, are not sensitive to the distinction between um, you know, investigation and interpretation, might take this to mean that 
uh, if I find neural activity associated with uh, a, a religious phenomenon, that I've somehow proven that there is no God and this religious experience is all in your head. The reality is that the, the reality is that the data doesn't show one way or the other. Um, if there is no God and a religious experience is, is really nothing but uh, neural activity, then if I look at the brain, I would see neural activity. Uh, if there is a God and spiritual experiences are legitimate, real phenomena, uh, when I scan people's brains, I would find neural activity. So, um, metaphysical naturalism would require uh, the research psychologist to set aside the question of whether or not uh, God exists and focus only on the question of what is happening in the brain uh, during the phenomena. You mean methylate? You mean methodological naturalism? Uh, did I did I say metaphysical? That's, yeah. Well, I was yeah, wrong. Methodological <laughs> naturalism would require us to uh, bring a certain modesty to the research. Uh, say, I, I can examine the brain, I can examine thoughts, feelings, and behavior, uh, but my scientific toolbox doesn't include a detect God tool. Sure. Um, I'd like to add something to that, actually, that occurred to me while you were while you were talking about this, how you can't distinguish between those two possibilities by just looking at the data. Um, not only that, but uh, by going the step further and claiming that by showing that there are these neural correlates of religious experience, uh, that that therefore explains everything about those religious experiences and says, oh, they're just in the head, they're nothing but you know, firing of neurons in certain, you know, sequence or whatever, um, that actually commits the genetic fallacy, which is the idea that um, you can uh, explain away or, or explain everything about um, a belief or the truth or falsity of a belief by explaining where that belief or originated. So, um, for example, um, you, uh, by just, let me, let me try to back up here and give another example. Say you, uh, a researcher is trying to understand uh, uh, the neurophysiology of uh, vision, and they're studying a person who is having a visual experience of an apple on a table. Um, they can see what, which neurons are firing when the person's thinking about an apple or seeing an apple or what have you, but uh, that doesn't explain um, away the apple. It doesn't. Uh, doesn't say anything about whether the apple exists. The person may believe that an apple exists, and the apple may or may not exist. But by claiming that you're, you are explaining the belief that the apple exists, that the person is seeing an apple in front of them right now, by simply uh, explaining the things that are going on in the brain as that's happening is, is, the, is a classic example of committing the genetic fallacy. So. Yep. Hmm. And, you know, most people would say, sure, you can show that neurons are firing and, and uh, uh, associate it with an image of an apple, but there's a reason for that. Apples exist, and people have experiences of apples that get 
you know, correlate it with what their brain is telling them about about it. And so, you know, it's just as possible that the same thing's happening with these religious experiences. We just can't tell for sure. And you're extrapolating beyond beyond what you ought to with the data that you have at your hands. I mean, that's 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 the, that seems to me that that's the the root problem. Yeah. Uh, as you're trying to go outside what um, what the, the the methods of science are, are actually able to give you information about. So I'm going to take the opportunity. Uh, I have the floor. I'm going to segue to the next question, which is which is going to be for Dan. What is it that you would say is characteristic of the process of scientific reasoning? Um, we know we we all grew up learning the scientific method um, taught in schools. And I think you'd probably agree with me uh, that the the, the five-step method given doesn't necessarily pass the sniff test, as it were. Um, what is it that that characterizes scientific inquiry? Can you can you give us an explanation of of what scientists do and the, and the process by which they gain understanding? I will do my best. First of all, I do agree that just having this sort of neat and tidy five-step or whatever step scientific method that is taught in school is at best a gross oversimplification and at worst is not even has anything to do with what actual scientists are doing at any given moment. Um, I would I would lean towards it being an oversimplification. So just to start off with answering this, um, I will try to lay out what that sort of idealized scientific method is, at least some of the steps in it. And uh, I would say it's some iteration of the following components. One, um, asking or formulating a question that you want to answer, like why is the sky blue or something like that. And B, formulating a hypothesis. The sky is blue because of scattering of preferential scattering of shorter wavelengths of light from the sun. Uh, Then you would perform, three, perform some experiment to evaluate this claim by uh, getting some volume of air in a laboratory and shining a light through it of different frequencies and seeing how much the light of different frequencies scatters and whether you have mostly blue light left in the ambient air. Um, That's really simplifying it, but that's an example at least. You get the idea. Um, And four, you would analyze the experiment, say, okay, you do the experiment, and then look at the data coming out of that experiment to test that, your original hypothesis. And E, then you would present the results. You would publish in a journal or you would uh, go to a conference and talk about it or what have you. So that's sort of this ideal scientific method model. Um, the problem with it is not that it necessarily it, it's in, incorrect in the sense that it doesn't characterize science. I think it does. Uh, it's just too simple in that there's rarely, if ever, these these uh, specific steps that an actual scientist goes through, one after the other, to get to some scientific result. There's usually some iteration that's going on. Like sometimes the scientist will um, perform an experiment, and at, while they're performing experiments, something else comes up that they didn't think of, and they have to go back and revise their hypothesis. Or maybe they find out that the question they asked to begin with was a bad one. They're asking the wrong question, so they have to go back to square one and start asking another one. Um, also, different scientists will be working more or less harder on different parts of that method at any given time. Uh, maybe one and one scientist may be out there formulating hypotheses, 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 
um, but not being performing experiments, somebody else will pick up on what that guy's hypothesis was and start running experiments. Another person might analyze them, and so on. So it's a lot more messier. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more nonlinear than presented. I'd say it's something like the pirate code. It's like they'd be more like <laughs> guidelines than actual code. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, I, so I love it. That, that's how I would say uh, how I would characterize yeah. it. So. No, that's awesome. I, 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 one of my favorite quotes. This is uh, um, Isaac Asimov uh, wrote this about about science. He, he says the the most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not "Eureka," but that's yeah, funny. funny. Yep. <laughs> I mean, totally isn't it true? Yep. Isn't it true? I mean, this, this is. Uh, you know, very often we'll be doing something, thinking we understand what's going on, thinking we don't understand what's we're, we're measuring, and find something that just does that, that just blows you away because it's unusual. Um, and that often is, as he says, the the the, the root of of a a, a new discovery of, of, of some kind. Um, I can't tell you in my own life how many times um, you know that's funny. Uh, or or an equivalent just popped out of my mouth before you know it happens to to stumble on something. Sure, it's, I think that's of I think if you talk to anybody who's been practicing scientists for long enough, you'll find many many examples of that. Um, yeah. The uh, other thing I think that the the kind of the neat and tidy list of methodology that I gave out there doesn't doesn't cover is some things that scientists actually do that are crucial. Um, one thing is falsifying. A hypothesis. Now we can talk about whether falsifiability is a absolute criterion for whether what makes something science or not. That's really not. It's a different question. But at least some most scientists would agree that you want to be able to try to show that a hypothesis can be falsified, and that doing so is just as much scientific as as providing evidence for a hypothesis. Mm. Um, there's also we already talked about the provisional nature of scientific knowledge. That's really not really codified in that method. Um, there's also the princip principle of parsimony or Occam's razor. You know, you can have a, something be consistent with a hi hypothesis, but what if it's also consistent with another hypothesis that has fewer assumptions? You know, how do you distinguish between which one is true? Uh, things like that. And also well, I understanding think one of the, the level, oh. I should say, sorry, understanding mm -hmm. that the level of uncertainty in your results and your conclusions coming from an uh, experiment and data analysis. Are you, how mm -hmm. certain are you that the results are what you think they're, they're showing what you think they're showing and that uh, you have the right theoretical framework to understand them? Or even the mm -hmm. right question that you're asking about the data, you know, what kind of presuppositions do you have? Like if you assume that light behaves as waves and everybody knows light behaves as waves all the time and you start doing things like double slit experiments you're going to be like uh, you try to ram that square peg into a round hole you're going to have trouble so things like that are important mm. to understand the presuppositions going into it and I think I actually straight yeah. into Charles's question territory <laughs> there so I'll, I'll stop there no, we'll get yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get there, and that's that's a good segue. But I want to I want to raise a a point or two here that that I I think is uh, is amusing. You know, one of the things that, and I just stumbled on this because in our in one of the the courses that I teach, the common first year course, um, that is uh, primarily humanities course, we're going to be reading something from Galileo in the spring, and uh, there is 
uh, a reaction to Galileo's work from Kepler, uh, in in which uh, Kepler says uh, well, a multitude of very very interesting things. But one of the things that that caught my eye, um, that's related to what you say, is uh, that he found it interesting that um, in fact Galileo's results seem to imply that air molecules are not blue. Um, and, you know, he could look through them, in fact, um, to see deeper, uh, darker, uh, see into space, as it were, and uh, through all these blue molecules and what have you. And, 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 and you know, perhaps people thinking of opacity of, 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 of space uh, arising from these, you know, big, thick molecules that happen to be blue might have, might have stopped some, some avenues of Oh, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point, <coughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and the the other point I wanted to bring up with regard to falsification, um, that is, you know, I, I I do think that is incredibly important, um, uh, and you know what it what it highlights is uh, something I think we haven't yet said that the experimental evidence is what rules. Um, the theory can only uh, live so long as it's consistent with what is seen experimentally. And um, and so all one can truly do with a hypothesis or a theory is disprove it. You can't ultimately prove it. All you can do is show consistency to some level. And um, I, I think I think we have to be, you know, that that, that again that again dovetails with the the notion of the provisionality of of scientific work. Mm -hmm. I think we have to really be careful to emphasize the that. The only I, I I largely agree um, that you that when it comes to falsifiability, well, for one, I agree that it's very important. Like I already said, I'm I also agree that you're much firmer ground in being able to disprove something, and you'll never be able to prove something within a scientific context. I agree with that. But on the flip side of that, I think that um, while I do agree that the empirical observations have quote unquote the final word. Even those have to be interpreted in some larger framework, um, and okay. and so it's not always clear what about the observations is going to have the final say, in it when in a scientific mm. theory, and it's possible, and I think even uh, likely that a lot of times you'll make some observation and and uh, the observation may go against some at least naively go against some cherished theory, but you shouldn't immediately throw the theory out. Um, you should check and recheck the observations, and maybe they're not mm -hmm. telling you what you, they, you think they're telling you. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would just say that as a word of caution, that because we, we see this a lot of times with, um, you know, you probably, uh, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, Todd, uh, when it comes to, like, particle mm -hmm. physics, there's all kinds of these, like, hints of new physics that come out a lot of times. Like, a good example would be the yep. uh, faster-than-light neutrinos uh, from a exactly. few years back where, by golly, they did their experiment. They got neutrinos that were faster than light, and they tried all these things to say, well, the data looks clean. And, um, you know, there was all of this flood of papers coming out mm -hmm. saying, oh, we got to fit this into some new theory. Here's what can explain it and whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, what turned out to be that the observations were actually in error. And uh, right. so that's just an example. Uh, oh, that's a perfect example, actually, of of the interplay between well, the overreaction of some theorists who might have immediately jumped on this and said, all right, 
Um, now my cockamamie uh, theory is yeah. correct. Or <laughs> but but I, I think what's important is that that I, I, w I bring this up to my students all the time. That example, that very example, is is a wonderful story. Um, in in this way, the the examination of the evidence and the discussion that was prompted by uh, the public release of those uh, of those data. Um, that is what led them to to re-examine and to look more carefully and to ultimately find right. the the problem. Yeah, that's a very good. Uh, yeah, um, that's an, yeah, very good point. It was uh, ultimately uh, the observations that ruled that out. Yeah, you're, you're right. Of right. course. But I but I but I do love it. I mean, I think it's a great example that that even very very good scientists and I know some of them, uh, you know, can be absolutely wrong and it can be simply a trivial thing yeah. um, that caused their observations to be an error okay let us go let us go then to to uh, the next question for for Charles um, as a psychologist I, I would suspect that you have some thoughts uh, on the power of presupposition and you've already mentioned it um, so w what is it what is the power of the a priori assumptions that we all make uh, in terms of how it shapes the way our scientific investigations are, are done and how they come about. Okay. Um, well, with our talk on falsifiability, we have uh, invoked uh, the spirit of Karl Popper. Uh, I'm going to uh, now turn to uh, Thomas Kuhn uh, and uh, the structure of scientific revolutions. Uh, so uh, presuppositions are the the assumptions that we make about our subject matter before we even start doing science about it. Um, now, uh, Thomas Kuhn in The Structure of Scientific Revolutions uh, called this a paradigm. Uh, it, and this also fits very well in uh, some worldview language. Um, scientists, uh, when they start investigating phenomena, uh, are guided by these pre-theoretical uh, ideas about the nature of reality. Uh, so some examples, um, I, I have, I have uh, structure of scientific revolutions in front of me here, I'm quoting from this. Um, so questions like, what are the fundamental entities of which the universe is composed? How do these interact with each other and with the senses? What questions may legitimately be asked about such entities and what techniques employed in seeking solutions? Uh, and so the the conceptual framework that we develop about uh, uh, in answering these uh, meta level questions uh, is what Kuhn called a, a scientific paradigm. Uh, this would all we would also bring into this uh, the basic principles by which we will interpret uh, our findings. And these uh, paradigmatic uh, presuppositions will have a tremendous power in shaping the theories that we generate, uh, in shaping the ways that we test the theories and how we interpret the results. Uh, within psychology, uh, we are guided uh, uh, most centrally uh, by uh, presuppositions about human nature. So uh, give uh, a couple of examples. Uh, is human nature, let's say, basically bad or basically good? Uh, I mean, that's, to, to bring a little Karl Popper back in there, that's not really the sort of thing that can be 
empiric that is falsifiable. Uh, so <clears throat> before we even start generating falsifiable hypotheses uh, and empirically testing our hypotheses, uh, we are guided by uh, our beliefs about the subject matter. So I'll uh, play a couple of psychologists off of each other. Um, if we believe that uh, human nature is bad, uh, and for my big example of this, I'll go with Freud. Um, Freud had a very pessimistic view of human nature. Uh, from uh, a letter that Freud wrote in 1918, Freud uh, said, I'm quoting here, uh, I have found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash. Now, if that's your view of what a human is, that's going to have profound implications for uh, the theories that you generate about how humans work and what we should do about it in the name of mental health and proper uh, psychosocial uh, functioning. Uh, for Freud, most of this was about imposing restraint. Uh, Freud's uh, theory uh, generated uh, is uh, uh, centers around the idea that human motivation primarily comes from sexual and aggressive instincts, and what and, and the sexual and aggressive instincts are constantly demanding immediate gratification. So, what we need to do in order to function as humans is to learn to in, to place restraint on our true self. Now, if we flip that around, I could go with some of the humanistic psychologists. Um, humanistic psychologists uh, are typically believe that human nature is basically good. Now, if human nature is basically good, then the key to mental health and proper functioning is to cast off restraints and allow the your true inner self to come out and be developed. So we end up with these uh, diametrically opposing uh, views of human nature, which lead to contradictory um, theoretical descriptions of human lives and would lead to uh, directly opposing practical applications. If we want to do something like uh, provide, um, let's say, advice for parents for raising their children, you're going to get some very different advice uh, if you ask someone who thinks that uh, children are a bunch of savage little animals that need to be put on a leash, uh, compared to if you uh, uh, if you're asking a psychologist who thinks that um, children are precious little flowers that need to be free to blossom uh, into their true selves, uh, and uh, psychology works best when we are explicit about our presuppositions. Uh, to go to another theory, and uh, again, fo you're focusing a bit on developmental psychology, Kol uh, Kohlberg's theory of moral development. Uh, I'm not going to go too much into this, but uh, Kohlberg wanted to look at the advance of our uh, moral reasoning from the most primitive and immature to the most sophisticated and, uh, and mature. And one of the things that I like about Kohlberg is that he's explicit about his philosophical presuppositions. Uh, you get into some of his uh, writings, he says right up front, uh, my psychological theory looks the way that it does because I'm strongly influenced by Plato and Kant and John Rawls. And now, with that 
philosophical pedigree, it's no big surprise that you end up with a developmental theory that describes the, uh, the highest form of moral reasoning to be abstract contemplation of universal moral or of universal principles of justice. So even if I'm going to disagree with Kohlberg, uh, I, he put his cards on the table, and we can at least have an open, um, open discussion about this. Now these hmm. uh, these paradigms, these sets of presuppositions, uh, can be useful. They, they can be good and they can be bad. You've got your positive side of this and your negative side of this. Uh, to go back to uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, paradigms are tremendously useful because once we have established our basic answers to the questions about the nature of the subject matter, we can then proceed with normal science and start asking specific questions, working through uh, particular hypotheses. So if I quote again from uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, uh, when the individual scientist can take a paradigm for granted, he need no longer in his major works attempt to build his field anew, starting from first principles and justifying the use of each concept introduced. So this gives us a shared disciplinary matrix uh, within which we can do our normal sciences and within which we can talk to each other. Uh, so as an example of this, I conducted a, uh, a personality study uh, recently I wanted to ask a specific question about personality and athletic performance. And the, the good thing about this uh, I, I, is that I, I could run the study. I didn't have to stop and ask, but what is personality? And stay at that level until I've got all of that um, you know, sorted uh, before I go ahead and uh, ask my specific question. Uh, I can just, you know, uh, go ahead with the study. Uh, this also, by the way, uh, th this study serves as another as an example of uh, the the theory having to bow to the evidence because I had what I thought was an outstanding idea uh, about. Uh, I, I won't go into too much of the details here, uh, but I had a, I had what I thought was a brilliant thought. Uh, about uh, the role of uh, personality, uh, specifically uh, neuropsychological aspects of personality, and athletic performance. And so I generated my hypothesis, and I uh, collected my data, I analyzed my data, and I found nothing. And so, <laughs> well, the, um, I mean, that was sad. I thought maybe I did it wrong, maybe you know, there was something wrong with my method, so I ran the study again uh, using uh, some, uh, uh, some what I hoped anyway, uh, was a little tighter and more rigorous methodology and uh, a, uh, a wider sample uh, to work with, and I found nothing. <clears throat> so I've run this study twice now, and I keep finding nothing. Uh, I may have to just admit that my brilliant idea was wrong. So, mm -hmm. uh, which that, itself that is, is knowledge, knowledge. But uh, where am I going to publish that? 
battle. <laughs> yeah, publishing negative results sometimes is yeah. tough. <laughs> but they're important. They're that, just as important, uh, I think. Well, they are, and they're... Interestingly, I've just read something. I can't remember the source, but um, there are, uh, in at least some fields, um, there is a real dearth of of negative results, which right. is causing problems because people are studying the same things over again, um, doomed to find nothing because the people who did studies uh, similar to those beforehand did not publish them right, or could not publish them. So I think negative results are really important. Um, and I've published a couple. And <laughs> they stink. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're, they're certainly not as but, sexy but as they're important. positive ones. So that's one of the reasons they don't yeah. get yeah. out there much. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No, that's uh, So while these, pre- Sorry, I didn't <laughs> no, uh, while these presuppositions, uh, they serve a very useful purpose and they're good, they can have a negative impact. Uh, most of what I've seen of the negative impact of presuppositions uh, typically involves psychologists who do not acknowledge that they're presuppositions. Uh, they present their theories, they present their findings, and they claim that uh, these are simply objective descriptions of reality. Um, this is just the way it is. This is, uh, and this this has some problems. Uh, one of them is that this can lead to the development of blind spots, uh, because what do you do with an observation that does not neatly fit with your established presuppositions? Um, you have there is the temptation to dismiss it, uh, to deny it, uh, to try and explain it away, uh, to the point that it could get silly trying to explain it away. Uh, one example, uh, there's a, uh, there was a psychologist by the name of Ed Deasy who was doing uh, behavioral psychology research, uh, and he came across an observation that was the opposite of what behavioral psychology uh, would predict. Uh, it specifically involved the effect of um, positive reinforcement on motivation to engage in the behavior when there is no, uh, there, when, when there is no longer any reward for the behavior, um, DC referred to this as an undermining effect of uh, external reinforcers on uh, intrinsic motivation. Uh, so, but and so anyway, he published his findings. It, it's entirely contrary to uh, straightforward behavioral uh, theory, and the behaviorists came back and said, "Yeah, well, you did it wrong." Uh, you should have uh, done the reinforcement this way. So DC rep ran the study again, used, doing it that way, and he found the same thing. He still found the undermining effect, uh, and the behaviorist came back, yeah, well, you you didn't reinforce it strong enough. So he did it again, reinforcing it more strongly, and found the same undermining effect. So, well, you didn't, you, you didn't extend the reinforcement session long enough, to, so he did it again, and he found the same thing. Um, so we we end up with this series of studies where uh, DC keeps re- responding to the behaviorists, making these methodological changes, uh, and he keeps finding the undermining effect, um, but the behaviorists never backed down. Uh, they kept saying, "Well, he must have done something wrong," because it's not like this well, theory could the be, end, though, you know, incomplete. In the end, though, doesn't that? even though the, maybe the motives were that they didn't want to back down because they wanted their theory to be true, still that ended up serving uh, science because he did all this stuff. He made his me- methodology more rigorous. 
So that makes it even more confident in the in the results. So that's one way where even like uh, uh, sort of holding on ham-fistedly to a certain theory can actually uh, improve uh, science in some way by by forcing people to be more rigorous in their methodology. The the, the opposition. So oh, certainly. Would you? Would you oh, agree I, with that? I certainly would agree with that. Um, it may be unpleasant. Oh, I mean, yeah, it, it would be unpleasant. But uh, at, at at some point, uh, a, a scientist needs to uh, acknowledge that at, at least their presuppositions might be incomplete. That there, there might be a little bit more to reality than uh, what they have in their right. theories. Um, picking on the behaviorists again, I'm probably going to pick on the behaviorists a lot. Uh, around here, but um, uh, B.F. Skinner, um, you know, d despite decades of impressive work by cognitive scientists, Skinner went to his grave uh, believing that cognitive science represented a step backward uh, for psychological science uh, because he held as, uh, a, as a matter of dogma that mental phenomena cannot ever be scientifically exam uh, examined. So the uh, yeah the the, the rigidity <laughs> yeah. uh, can be a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I at this point in the discussion, I think what I'd like to do is move us to. And I'll ask both of you this question, and and maybe I'll offer some thoughts too. Um, if if we look at we've we've talked about presuppositions we talked about the dangers of presuppositions um, we haven't really talked necessarily about the dangers of scientism um, both culturally or within the scientific establishment and so forth and so I, I'd like to know your thoughts on um, what is what is wrong uh, or what's <laughs> wrong with scientism that's pretty easy to answer I suppose but what 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 do we face what dangers do we face face specifically um, both within science scientific communities and in the in the population as a whole um if if scientism is is held to um dan first um and then charles uh yeah i think that uh by ho holding to a thoroughgoing scientism i think you run the danger of as a scientist of closing off areas of inquiry that that you might benefit from that would help actually sharpen your science and I'm thinking specifically of, of philosophy, um, understanding philosophical presuppositions that come behind science, you know, understanding um, how to formulate a good argument, um, understanding the rules of logic better. If you if you are apt to dismiss philosophy, um, as many many scien uh, scientists do, I, I shouldn't say many, but some, at least some scientists do, then. Uh, then uh, you you run that risk of actually hurting yourself, hurting your science. Um, I also think that um, it, you can easily slip into uh, hubris about un we we think we know figured out the final way of understanding the world, and uh, false sense of security about our intellectual abilities as humans. I think that's also a danger. Um, I also think that in more uh, more uh, sociologically speaking, it can. Uh, harm the spread of, of real scientific understanding, which is very important um, we, uh, for the public to understand what, how science works and you know, its benefits and 
the presuppositions behind it. And if you have scientists going around, you know, strutting around, acting like science is the end all and be all of, of human intellectual endeavor, I think it's the first time I'm going to quote the uh, Peter Atkins article where he calls it the apotheosis of human intellect. Did I, did I say that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a pretty strong statement, and, you know, it's not going to sit very well. I mean, <laughs> what justification do you have for that statement from, from the standpoint of science? And I would argue there is none. Um, and that's just mm. going to harm the image of science amongst uh, the general public, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that, that there'll be a few things I say. But I also kind of want to, real quick, I know we're running out of time, but I want to turn this around on its head a little bit. I think that there are some positive things we can get out of scientism. And uh, so long as we don't take a wholesale adoption of it. And that would be mainly to, to uh, combat poor science or bad science amongst our ra- ranks, our own ranks of scientists, and also out there among the general public where you have you know, any number of people claiming to be scientific and just doing really bad science. Science. I mean, we talked about bad philosophy, right? We, there's also bad science out there. And I think sort of insisting on a certain rigor of understanding of science and what it actually does and how important it is, which actually Peter Atkins' article talks a lot about in the beginning part of his article. And I had a few things to disagree with overall in you know, the first part of his article until he started you know, dismissing philosophers and things. I think if we, we, can take, we can take the good out of that, take that to heart, and still insist on a good, pure, well, pure is a bad mm-hmm. word, but a good, rigorous <laughs> science <laughs> amongst mm-hmm. yep. So that's one yeah. good thing that may come out of it, I think. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, th- I, I think it, it is important to recognize, and, that, and that's helpful to see um, really even the genesis of, of scientism may partly lie in a desire for, um, for rigor and, and really careful right. science. Um, so whether you attribute to the you know that uh, that to to scientism or you you, you revert to um, calling it um, uh, an, an emphasis on on really what science ought to yeah. be, um, yeah, that's definitely a positive. Yeah, that's that's exactly what Charles? I was getting at. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, I was also drawn to that uh, turn of phrase in the uh, the Peter Atkins argument the, uh, the, that he referred to science as the apotheosis of the human intellect. Um, part that I found funny is uh, j- just that, you know, this, you know my, possibly a minor thing, uh, that the word apotheosis means a man becoming a god. Uh, yeah. <laughs> draw your own uh, inferences. Uh, from that, <laughs> uh, right. I'll focus a bit on the impact of scientism uh, for uh, Christians who practice science and uh, Christians in the general population. Um, the The scientistic attitude is one of the primary culprits in the creation of this artificial conflict uh, that some claim exists between science and religion. Uh, if we had mm-hmm. uh, spent some more time uh, dissecting the Peter Atkins uh, article, uh, it was you know shot through with uh, profoundly anti-religious sentiment. Uh, the idea that there is an absolute us and uh, versus them, uh, and mm-hmm. you are either on uh, the side of right or you are on the side of stupid. Um, and mm. the more this. Uh, uh, 
conflict uh, hypothesis uh, gets kicked around, it can create um, the, uh, the, the impression that a person has to choose between being a scientist and being a believer. Uh, and I have, uh, I've encountered more than one uh, young person who uh, started out uh, in a religiously active home, uh, but uh, became, uh, became an atheist because they found science and decided that they have to be one or the other. And science is really cool, therefore, I'm going to be one of us and not one of them. And so we have this, um, uh, th this artificial division. Uh, and uh, scientism can also uh, sort of poison the discussions that could exist uh, for fruitful interactions between science and philosophy and between science and religion. Uh, because if scientific uh, knowledge is given either privileged or ultimate status as truth, then any introduction of theology into the discussion uh, would be seen as a loss for science. We end up seeing this as sort of a zero-sum game. Uh, any plus religion yeah. equals a minus science. Uh, and uh, we can get the same problem coming at it from the other side. Um, if we... I mean, if we have this idea that we must choose between being a scientist and being a believer, uh, a young person uh, could see that this is a dichotomy, and, well, I don't want to walk away from Jesus, uh, therefore, boo science. Um, yep. Mm -hmm. When it's a false dichotomy, we don't need to do it. And uh, we can have the same thing from this other perspective in terms of seeing dis these discussions as a zero-sum game. Um, <clears throat> if a... I mean, uh, if a theologian, for example, uses the uh, scientific findings to try and guide uh, theology, uh, those who hold to this artificial distinction would see this as a loss for religion. Uh, that you know that we we shouldn't let the scientists tell us uh, what to believe. Uh, so, and. I, I, I don't want to push that too far because I do think that that actually can be a danger. Uh, so we, we say, mm -hmm. well, it, uh, I mean, w within psychology, so a psychologist comes along and says, uh, um, let's up, I, I have my own issues with the self-esteem thing, but let's say that there is a pro-self-esteem psychologist who says, we need self-esteem. And then uh, uh, a pastor or a theologian or something goes, oh, science says uh, self-esteem, therefore pride's not a sin. Uh, that's a problem. That's wrong. Yeah. But um, one, another good thing about being me is my wife is a theologian, and so I get access to her books. And there are a number of theologians who are uh, working through uh, theological implications of scientific findings. Uh, in my own area, if we go back to the neuropsychology uh, of uh, of religion. Well, if we, if we talk about neuropsychology in general, there is a, a thriving uh, discussion going on about things like uh, the nature of the soul uh, in light of current neuroscientific discoveries. And that kind of fruitful interaction is only possible if we turn off the us versus them mentality 
That's right. We, we, have, we have to. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have to not see it as a zero sum game. Uh, so if a neuroscientist starts saying something that has possible relevance for a theological understanding of the human condition. Um, the theologian doesn't necessarily need to bow down and say, all right, well, you know, science has spoken, therefore... But uh, to uh, bring the neuroscience in as a valued uh, uh, conversation partner and we start bouncing ideas off of each other to develop more sophisticated, more complex and nuanced and ultimately more, and, um, more true, I would say, uh, understandings of the human condition or the nature of the universe or uh, the, the origin of the universe, things like that. Um, that I would see as tremendously beneficial, but it can't work if we look at science and religion as fundamentally in conflict. Yeah, at the bare minimum, you know, religion can mm. provide, a, you know, some impetus and for formulating questions to ask within the context of science to begin with. And hmm. Yeah, that, that this this conflict actually is is worth an episode on its oh, own. Um, whether we want to go back to AD White's history of warfare of science with theology uh, or not to 1898 or whenever uh, that was. Yeah, I think this is a a fascinating subject area. Um I think we we are we are out of time or very very close to out of time. Yeah, and um, I think it. I, I should uh, I should pull you for for any any closing comments on this that you want to throw out there uh, briefly. Well, go ahead, uh, yeah, Dan. <laughs> no, I I I think that we've run over a lot of ground today. So, uh, in the interest of time, I think. Um, we should sure. just kind of leave it there. I think there's a lot of uh, good stuff that has been said and a lot of potential avenues for future topics. So really mm. good discussion. That's all I got to say. Uh, I would say that uh, you know, while we have covered uh, quite a bit of ground, we have only scratched the surface. Yeah. Uh, plenty of potential for ongoing discussion. So uh, I will say, listeners, we welcome feedback. Uh, if uh, any of you want to chime in, uh, add to the conversation, uh, there are many ways to contact us. Uh, you can email us. The email address is bookofnaturepodcast, that's all one word, bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or uh, show notes will be up at uh, www.christianhumanist.org. Uh, and we are working on the possibility of a Facebook page uh, in the future. Uh, so we we welcome uh, continuation of this discussion. Absolutely, absolutely. No yes, doubt. please. Uh, speaking Send hate yeah. mail, whatever. <laughs> Tell us how wrong we are. Tell us how much you love us. Whatever. Just feedback. Yeah. yeah, this is a community effort here. Um, Charles, you're up next uh, for our next podcast. What are we going to be talking about? Well. As in all things, I'm going to make it all about me. Uh, our topic for the next episode is going to, uh, going to be, is psychology a real science? Uh, so, yeah, that's right. We're going to look at uh, a couple of different perspectives on this. Uh, and I will uh, place myself in the uncomfortable position of uh, uh, listening to two real scientists. <laughs> 
uh, weigh in on my entire field. <laughs> Very good. I th that sounds should great. Be fun. Um, should be a lot of fun. So before uh, before leaving you listeners, I'd like to note that the Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, you can find us again at christianhumanist.org. Our intern is Zach Schmidt, and our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. So now on behalf of Dan Dawson and Charles Hackney, this has been Todd Pedler thanking you for partaking in another hour of the Book of Nature. Look for us next time when Charles will lead us in the discussion of Is Psychology a Real Science? It's been fun. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>